Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Sober Stories crew. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. I've got a really great conversation for you today. After playing phone tag for the longest time, I got to interview David Wilson of Sober Dave. I've admired the way Dave serves in our community for a long time, and it was really fun to finally meet him. Today, you'll hear how Dave went from being nicknamed Glugs, as in can glug a lot of beer, to being well-known by the moniker Sober Dave. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Dave and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories family, I am really excited to welcome David Wilson of Sober Dave to Sober Stories. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's uh, finally not so hot here, so I'm enjoying it. And I'm telling basically everybody I know that it's not 100 degrees. (laughs) Uh, That's hot, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty warm, but that's all right. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I feel like you and I have been playing phone tag for many months at this point. And I have long been a follower of your account and your podcast. And I really see you as kind of one of these pillars in our sober community. So for those who don't know you, for those who are not familiar with you, give us a little bit of the cliff notes, who you are, where you are, what you do. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, my name's Dave, David Wilson, and uh, I'm known on Instagram as Sober Dave. I'm coming up to four years sober in January, um, something I'm very proud of. Yeah, I'll tell you my story when we get going, but um, I got to a stage that I was drinking every single day quite heavily, and I basically had to stop, otherwise I don't think I'd be here today. So I'm a grey area drinking coach. Uh, I've got my own podcast, Fun for the Road. I've got an app. I've been very, very busy since (laughs) I've become sober, and it's been life-changing in many areas as well. Mm. Mm. I'd love to talk about that because I feel like, this expansion once you're sober is is a theme that I see happening with a lot of people. But mm. let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us more about your story and how you got mm. here and where you are now today? So um, I grew up um, in quite a rough area in the UK, sort of South London. Mum and dad didn't really have a lot of money. Um, my dad was a lorry driver. My mum used to work part time. So we used to wear second-hand clothes and you know but it was okay we used to have nice food and always have a holiday down in cornwall in the west country and i was a pretty quiet kid and then when i was about 12 we moved area and i went to a different school and it was quite rough actually Mm. and being a quiet lad i kept out of the kind of kids that i thought were trouble and i kept Mm -hmm. myself to myself but when I was 14, I got up one day to go to school and there was a note on the table and it was from my mum. And she had just said, David, I'm leaving your dad. I'll be in touch. Um, mm. And that was it, basically. I had no clue or anything. And I went to school, come home. My dad was broken. 
Uh, and it wasn't long after that that I started to mix with the what I called the trouble kids, you know, mm -hmm. because they kind of accepted me under their wing. They found out about it and they said, come on, Dave, let's go out and we can go up the shops and that. But obviously they were drinking, getting the adults to buy them beer from their loose change and whatever, and they encouraged me to do the same. So I started drinking quite a lot, quite early, and I wasn't really a fighter. So I become the role in this group where they used to have a lot of tear up. So I become the role as the drinker at quite a young age. Mm. And quite often I'll go to school with a hangover. But in those days, it's a laugh, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. like, oh my God, what right. did you drink last night and whatever. And also in those days, you didn't need uh, ID to go into mm. a pub. So we used to go into the pub 15 years old mm -hmm. and drink with the adults and drink pints, play darts, play pool. And I soon started getting a reputation in the pub for being quite a character, you know, with the old drinking. Mm. And it kind of went on from there. That's where it started for me. I, I took to it like a duck in water, you know. I mm -hmm. was I was really, I loved drinking and gave me confidence for the girls and they just fitted in with me. And that went on really. Um, I was really sporty. So it was work hard, play hard attitude, you know. I do a lot of sport and then after the, say, football, go for a beer at the weekends, go clubbing, get up and play football with a hangover in that. And that went on and on and on. But we can go on to that, if you like, a bit later <laughs> about how it changed over the years, really. Mm. Yeah, I feel like when you're kind of young and dumb and don't know any better, you don't realize that playing football with a hangover, well, I guess I assume you mean soccer, playing soccer yeah. with a, a hangover is is gnarly. Would be now, but in those days, you just this part. Well, I think we all did. Sunday football <laughs> was different from Saturday afternoon football, mm. but it was. I mean, we used to get in at four or five a.m. and then meet at nine Ugh. to play ninety minutes of football. And and the thought of that now is like, oh my god. But then again, <laughs> the thought of a hangover now is like that as well. So totally, totally. Yeah. So what happened after that? Well, I met someone on holiday and um, she didn't drink and she moved back to the UK. She was working in Greece and pretty much moved in with me straight away because I had my own flat. And then when I was 30, I had my son, George, and, and somehow the responsibility kind of got to me a little bit, mm. you know. So I started drinking again and I started going to this pub that over in the UK, they call them like a backstreet local. So mm. a Young's pub and had a public bar and a saloon bar. And the public bar was more for the workers, like the builders and mm -hmm. stuff. And the saloon bar was more for the professionals, like solicitors and stuff like that. So I used to go in the public bar and I was quickly nicknamed Glugs because I would drink really, <laughs> really quickly because mm -hmm. I was under a time constraint because I had to get back, mm. right? So if I had an hour, I would probably drink six pints in mm -hmm. an hour and then go back and then have to look after the baby and whatever. Mm. And it got out of hand, to be honest. Something yeah. I'm not proud of, but it got out of hand. And after a couple of years, me and his mum separated. So then I was kind of free of full-time responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I started going to the pub a lot more. So I'd have George at the weekends. And I, I will say I didn't ever drink when I had George mm -hmm. because of the responsibility. But 
when I didn't have him, I used to go mad and it included lock-ins where I'd be in the pub till two, three in the morning, mm. going mad. But then where it changed again is I started to buy takeouts. So it wasn't just the pub and done. It was the pub, go to the off-license and buy then something called Diamond White Cider, which was 8.4%, I think, or 82 It was lethal, yeah. like literally lethal. And drink them till the early hours of the morning, just pass out and get up in the morning, like really hanging, like mm. awful. Drive to work probably over the limit. But what happened there was that become a routine because yep. in the pub, it was never enough for me. I also had a little bit of um, pride going on there because I didn't want people to think I had a drink problem as well. So right. I used to do my stint in the pub and be relatively sober-ish when I would leave because then I would know I had more to go mm. home to. So it weren't such an issue and then get blotto at home. And then I went through my 30s having loads of failed relationships because I couldn't hold them down. And then when I was 40, I moved away from the pub. It was like two miles away from the pub. And it was near a pub, but I didn't like it. It just didn't mm. have the same feel, you know. It was more like a carvery. So in the UK, you would go in and there would be roast beef and, and you would help yourself to all the okay. stuff. But it had a, <laughs> so a so many words that I'm adding to my lexicon. I don't know. Yeah. Like carvery yeah. And- so <laughs> a carvery was, you would have the chef carve the meat, but okay. all the veg and whatever you could go up as many yep. times as you want. So I was quite a pig. So I used to go in there that. Here. <laughs> yeah. But go home and then drink myself stupid. But um, I started to put on loads of weight because the amount I was drinking. And, of course, when you're drinking like that, you have bad food choices, right? Mm -hmm. Late night snacking, takeaways, pizzas and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point that I was, like, really heavy. So I Googled what alcohol has the least calories, right, Mm -hmm. and up come vodka. So I went from drinking... Loads of beers and then ciders onto wine because back then you could buy three bottles of wine for 10 quid. So it was a good deal, a lot cheaper mm. than going to the pub, right? So now I started buying vodka and then that just was a yeah. disaster because I had never really drank spirits. I would never drink them down a the pub, never when I was clubbing and that. What I found with spirits is I could get a really quick fix and mm. not feel bloated and not. You know, it was an immediate fix. So I could do half a bottle of vodka in 20 minutes. It was, Mm. I was drinking vodka like I was drinking pints. Mm. So I went from half a bottle of vodka to a bottle because a half bottle didn't last all night. And then I realized a bottle wasn't lasting all night. Mm. So I went on to liters. And then I literally led years of being a solitary drinker. Mm. It was, I was in my comfort zone because I had no one there judging me, no one telling me anything. Like mm-hmm. they weren't saying, oh, you drink a lot or do, do you think you should calm down a bit? It was like I'd locked myself in, right. especially at a weekend. Fridays, I would finish early. I was self-employed. Go shopping, buy three litres of vodka, a case mm-hmm. of Stella, wine, anything. Mm-hmm. And but I would eat as well. I wouldn't, I wasn't one of those drinkers that would just starve themselves throughout mm. the weekend. Go home and then come out the door Monday morning. I hadn't talked to anyone, probably text about 30 people, K 
keyboard warrior where yeah. I've upset everyone <laughs> because I was bored and looking for attention, come out Monday morning like death, like mm. literally, and the bottles clanking in the recycling mm-hmm. and, you know, putting them in there at 10 o'clock at night so no one would see me and dreading the dustman coming mm-hmm. because they probably knew my recycling bin by the bloody mm-hmm. noise it made when I emptied it. And I... I started to become actually quite depressed because mm-hmm. as we know, alcohol is a depressant anyway, right. but I wasn't socializing. I wasn't doing anything. And where I lived was in a little row of cottages, right? It was beautiful. And my neighbors were really sociable. Youngest couple always having parties and that. And they used to say to me, we're having a party Saturday, Dave, you come in. And I was thinking, mm. That means I won't be able to drink till the evening. Right. That means I'll be restricted in what I can drink. Otherwise, I'm going to look like proper drunk. Mm-hmm. And I used to make excuses that I was going out. So I used to sit in my house in the dark. So they thought I was out. Mm-hmm. And I would sit behind the sofa with my litre of vodka, my headphones on, listening to music mm-hmm. all night until I pass out. I mean, it's awful, really. Mm-hmm. And I went on like that for years, literally years and years and years. The the flip of that, though, was I got an email from ITV, TV studios, asking whether I wanted to go for an interview to appear on one of these makeover shows. Oh. You know where they make over <laughs> yep. houses, right? Mm-hmm. And my initial thing was, how can I go for that interview without – drinking the night before how could i ever be on the program because of where my drinking's got to i put all these obstacles in the way but i thought no i'm going for it right so i went for the interview and i got the gig and it was on prime time tv on um itv two o'clock in the afternoon with with um the team and i went there and and the first night i was there i was like oh my god like I've got to really, really moderate. But I realised that all the guys there, they were big drinkers as well. So I fitted in straight away. Mm. So then I I was on this TV show, everything changed. You know, like it's good, I was social again. It's like a new lease of life. So my depression lifted. But then what I started doing was when we go to the bar after the makeover, I also had two bottles of wine left in my suitcase that mm. I, no one knew about. And I'll go back to my room where everyone when else went to sleep. I was, well, I've got two bottles of wine now and carried on. And the cameramen in the morning were like, Dave, you stink, mate. <laughs> you stink of booze. But that's how it was. I went on to meet someone who ended up, I married this person who we did the show, we did our house over and my my, I didn't stop drinking when I moved in and she didn't really know about it. And that's a, another story. And I want to sure. breathe so I'm not just rambling on. <laughs> so one of the things I really that really stood out to me in, in this conversation so far is this idea of stages and, and of different changes and of different seasons in life and how 
the thread that I am putting through here is this idea that we have so many similar stories and we have one thing every time you would say something is like, and then this happened and then this happened. And then this is how my drinking evolved to fit around this new season. And I think that that's going to be something that people really resonate with this idea of it kind of slowly escalates and Mm. each new stage in life molds and shapes to fit around the drinking and we make all sorts of stories and excuses in our heads to justify the drinking and to fit it into these new boxes so what was the the change mechanism for you what was the thing that helped you quit as i say i met this lady that we start to see each other and unfortunately she got cancer right mm. at the beginning and she gave me the opt-out but I decided that it was okay and and um, we got through that and she recovered from uh, breast cancer for the second mm. time and it was difficult because I was still drinking but I started to drink secretly because mm-hmm. I didn't want her to know how bad it was but at this stage we wasn't living together and when I decided to sell my house and move in I thought I really need to sort my drinking out mm-hmm. but every single day it was like oh, <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow I'll do it yeah. tomorrow so we know that story so when I moved in I was still at the peak of my drinking and it was a nightmare because I tried to hide it but gradually I slipped it into oh should I have a bottle of wine tonight or and we used to do that so then her drinking increased because she wasn't someone that really drank but then gradually the cracks began to show and it started to affect our relationship in a bad way because she wasn't used to it and we had many many arguments and disagreements and whatever but I had a really bad uh, situation in 2018 where we had a big row I just got in the car and I drove to the sea because I just Mm. loved the the sea ended up there dumped the car off around the back street and went straight into the pub at 10 a.m right which Mm. is something I would never normally do right I went in the pub started drinking and then immediately thought this is right I got a bit of a free ticket here because she's got the hump. She's not going to ring me and whatever. The sad thing there was it went on for four days mm. and it was at Easter here. So there was nowhere to stay. But part of it was, do you know what? I can sleep on the beach. I make it into a road trip. You know, I'm going to live rough, <laughs> live by the edge. Glamorize whatever, it right? a little bit. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was awful, right? Because... I was drinking all day in this pub and then I'll go to the supermarket around the corner and buy vodka and then go on to the beach. But it was like March. Mm. So it was quite warm in the day, but at night it was treacherous, you know. But I was so drunk that I couldn't even stand up. And I stood up and fell over again and cut my face on the stones. And this went on for four days. Mm. But also when I said to you before about depression, I'd gone to the doctors about it and he didn't really tackle my drinking thing. Mm. That didn't even come up, right? But he put me on this high dose of antidepressants, right? And they just didn't go with me, you know. But with the drink on top, it was almost like I went mad. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got back and the doctor saw me and reduced the thing. But that still wasn't enough. It, mm. it I carried on and on and on. But it was in January 2019 that got up one day and I knew I'd had enough. You mm. know, the doctor had said, 
you were walking time bomb, Dave. You, you, your blood pressure was 186 over 124. Mm. You're three stone overweight. You've got high cholesterol. You've got reflux. Everything for my age at the time was 54 was literally, you're going to drop down dead. Mm. Now, it was like an epiphany that day. And, and I got a text from a friend and he said, how do you fancy giving up alcohol with me for three months? And I laughed. I literally <laughs> laughed, right? Yeah. Because I didn't think I could give up for three days, let right. alone three months. Right? But it was almost like a spell because it mm. trickled in on me throughout the day. And I remember about five o'clock, I pulled over on the left-hand side and I looked at it again and I thought, I wonder how I would be in three months' time if I stopped drinking. How mm. would my health be? How would my relationship be? How would my weight be? All these different things. And it kind of inspired me, the thought of it. So I went to see him and he, and he opened the door and stood there and I said to him, let's do it. Hmm. And that was it. It was lit. That was it. It was like wow. the perfect timing. That night I went to a neighbor's and he said, do you want a beer, Dave? And I went, oh, thanks. Hmm. And it was, oh, I ain't going to say it's as easy as that. Right. Trust me, it wasn't. But. The decision was, I mean, I know Annie Gray, she talks about her dad, right? And, and she she talks about spontaneous sobriety because her dad used to drink a bottle of whiskey a day and he just gave up. But I don't believe that. I think, mm. I think it's a process that we go right. through, that we know we've got to stop. We know we've got to change it. And it's a gradual thing. Mm. It was subliminal for me. So I kept saying I know I've got to do something about it. I know I've got to stop. I know I've got to change. I was saying that for probably a couple of years. So when I gave up, I just think that was the final bit mm. of the jigsaw puzzle that that clicked in that day. So I don't think it was spontaneous or bright. I just think it was the right time yeah. for me. Wow. And what did those next three months look like for you? Difficult, challenging. I mean, in the first month, I had um, a 40th birthday party to go to, and it was a free bar in the pub. Hmm. So literally, that would have been my absolute dream. There was right. wine everywhere. <laughs> there, yeah. You know, I'd have had all my little techniques, how to guzzle wine and then mm -hmm. take the freshly filled up glasses over to the people, and I'd have had it all planned out. Hmm. And I went there, and to be honest, I didn't enjoy it at all. I found it challenging, so I left after an hour, and I said to my wife then, I'm going to leave because I can't handle this. It's too much for me. And I left and it was once I'd gone, it felt okay. Mm. But in the morning I got up and I thought, well, that's a big challenge that I've got over. Tick. You know, I had all these tick boxes, yep. like weekends, Friday nights, you know, Sunday afternoons when I was mm. cooking a roast dinner, all these things that were really challenging. And other times of the week weren't so challenging. So I took the wins and – I journaled and listened to podcasts and read and and did different things, you know, like the times that I would normally want to drink, I just went out and walked the dog, mm. changed the environment and yep. the association with drinking and it worked for me. But I, I had lots of trigger points that I had to address because we do, don't we? We're, mm -hmm. It was 40 years of drinking, so I'm right. not going to just think, oh, that's all right. We're It's like a massive codependency that right. – we're hooked in, aren't we? Plus then when you leave that relationship, mm -hmm. 
we have the addiction to deal with and then we have the feelings to deal with because mm -hmm. they pop up and it's like oh god i've blunted <laughs> them out for 40 years what are yeah. these what am i meant to do with that <laughs> you know what i mean it's, it it was really really difficult but the way i describe it is like a house of cards you've got to start mm. on the bottom right and you build them up and the more you build them up the less you want to kick them over mm. and i kind of looked at it like that and i've got to a stage of my i reckon about two months and i thought you know what i've got a month to go what am i gonna do mm -hmm. when that time is up yeah i was wondering and what I happened thought, at the I, end I, 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 I would just drink again. So what's mm. the point? So I turned it on its head and I thought, right, that's it. I'm done now. And once I said that, mm. I started another phase of it. And I thought, yes. right, I need to really work on a long-term game for this rather than a short one. If you've been around here for a minute, you know that therapy has been one of the most essential tools mentioned in the success stories of folks building a life without alcohol. In fact, as a therapist who's in therapy myself, I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders of connecting with a licensed professional and talking about the joys and struggles of changing our relationship with alcohol. That's why we're happy to partner with BetterHelp, a digital therapy platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. It's easy. Fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unloaded messages with your therapist between the meetings. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge with their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sober stories. That's betterhelp.com slash sober stories. I think that that idea of, of saying I'm done is really powerful and you're exactly right. It is stepping into the next iteration of this. And I, I talk with people all the time who, you know, I, I think in the sober space too, we say like, if you can't grasp onto the idea of quote unquote forever yet, you don't have to, that's okay. Mm. Just stay sober for now, whatever it takes to be in this moment and to get through another day and to continue taking the next right step. But I think there is something really powerful that happens when you say, I'm done. This is it. Yeah. Like when you can embrace that idea of, I am no longer a person who drinks, I'm stepping into this next chapter of it. There's like this little mental switch that kind of clicks for, for some people, for, for many. For some, and that worked for me. I had to make it a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, that is it. You know, I look at it as like a relationship with, someone once you decide it's over it's over and then the trouble is when you get through the pink cloud it's a bit like when you finish with someone and after a few weeks you start to forget the bad times right and then they text you and it's how are you doing you're all right i miss you actually and you think oh i miss them yep. there's the bloody <laughs> cravings coming back in that so I'm a very visual person. So for me, I had to cut the umbilical cord mm. between me and my relationship with alcohol because being with it for 40 years, it's, I'm institutionalizing to that. I've done everything in my life. It's, my decisions have been based on alcohol, mm. you know? I like the way that you conceptualize this as like an actual relationship because it is mm. in so many ways. It's, it's 
the, the the partner, it's the friend, it's the party friend. It's when I work with people and they remove alcohol, I, I find that a lot of people have this sense of guilt or embarrassment around how much they feel it and how much mm. they feel almost a grief process in mm. making this choice. But it really truly is. There is truly a grief process in deciding to remove this substance from your life for many of us, because it, it is something that we are so codependent on. It is something that we have enmeshed in so many different parts of our lives. And so for the women I work with, I say, you know, feel that, like you get to feel that. And we know with the grief process that you have to feel it to be able to move through it. What has kept you sober over all of these years coming up on four years in January? I think it's not just the giving up drinking that's kept me there. I've built a community. Mm. Um, when when I first started, I went to an event in London, and I have never been out really without pre drinks or so. To go to this event, Cold Stone sober and walk in was terrifying, and I nearly didn't go in. And I'm a big six foot man, you know, <laughs> that I, I, when I'm drinking, I'll do anything. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm walking past the entrance and then I can't go in, can't go in. Mm. Eventually went in, met some amazing people, all different shapes and sizes from all different backgrounds. And I got back on the train and I thought, wow, there's so many normal people mm. there. So I started talking about it on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's not many people of my age. Mm -mm. I'm now late fifties and there's not many people that talk about their emotions, let alone a bloke. Yeah. Right. So I found a, a niche there somewhere, but so I started being really honest about how it was for me. And it's not all bells and whistles where, mm -hmm. Oh my God, look at my sober skin and my yeah. hair. <laughs> I lost all this weight. And so, yeah, now, exactly. I, now I, some of this is pretty crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm not sleeping and I'm struggling with my feelings and whatever. And I found a niece. So I started to build this community up. And then I held an event myself in the September. Mm -hmm. And I also did a charity bike ride to Paris from London mm -hmm. and made some money. So I started to get more and more followers and that. And then it went from there. And one day I just, light bulb moment, I thought I'm going to do a podcast. I, I had no idea about doing a podcast, really didn't, right? Yeah. So I decided to launch this podcast called One for the Road because there's two ways of looking at it. One for the Road is the old-fashioned saying, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's yep. like in the US, but yep. it's like, oh, should we have One for the Road? Mm -hmm. uh, and also it's One for the Road that people listen to it in their cars or on a run mm -hmm. or down the gym things like that. And on my first episode that I recorded went into number three in the wow. UK Apple charts. Wow. I was like, what has happened here? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And now I'm on season seven. Amazing. Uh, I've had some incredible guests. So there's that. Then I've got an app. But basically what I'm saying is I made myself accountable mm. to others. And I still say to this day that if I, which I won't, by the way, and that's a whole new conversation if yeah. <laughs> people say, do you feel you drink again or yeah. not? Because there's a lot of people say, well, you don't know. But i that's what I tell myself, that I'm not, because it works for me. Right. Right? But I know that if I did, people would forgive me and that would open a whole new avenue of conversation, which I would right. get over. But, you know, the accountability is quite important. It is. Um, I've done talks in colleges and that. And, and basically, it's a, a new life for me, a new way mm. of life. 
I've given up my old career as well. I did that for 40 years. And now I'm a professional sobriety coach, mm -hmm. did training with Jolene Park, grey area drinking. Mm -hmm. I've got loads of things behind me that I've done that I've really enjoyed. And I just can't see life. Mm. I suppose for me, it's, it's like, as I said before, being with someone since school, my first love, right? And in the beginning, it's weekends in bed, going out with your friend everything's great and then gradually in time you move in together and then you get used to each other and then one of the part of the relationship gets controlling i.e mm. alcohol, alcohol. Mm -hmm. then it starts to dominate your life and then you feel powerless right mm. so it's about breaking those ties and saying i don't want to be with you anymore because you don't serve me in any way at mm. all and it's about what you said is really valid about cutting those ties grieving which is something mm -hmm. not many people talk about but i grieve now sometimes yep. because it's natural you right. know it's a natural emotion to grieve something you've lost right mm -hmm. and it's served me for 40 years in in whatever right. capacity that means it served me 40 years so i grieve but i've gone through a multiple of emotions with it and it's almost like i've got to know it in a different way now that it's mm. very very devious it hides in the cracks and i know now that if i said to you now we're talking about it, it's got a real weird craving to have a drink his ears would prick out and go oh hello i haven't heard that for nearly four <laughs> years now oh now i can come out to play yeah. do you know what i mean so i i have to be aware all the time as well Mm. I'm not done with it. It, it. I have to work constantly mm -hmm. at it. But I feel now that I've got more experience and I have more control over it than I did six months ago and then a mm. year ago, you know. So mm. it manifests, you know. But I just, <laughs> and it, it's ironic because a lot of people that know me now can't even imagine me being a drinker. Right. Like, right. Just, You're sober, Dave, to me. me. <laughs> yeah that's what i mean like yeah. and and not glugs down the pub yeah. that used to chuck six to ten pints down in an yeah. hour you know so it's interesting isn't it mm. you know i find that really refreshing though when you can be an entirely different person and you can overcome a previous identity that you've had because i think people would say the same thing about me that they can't imagine me being depressed and sad and a new mom drinking two bottles of wine on a couch every night like but that's my story and I talk to people and they'll say you know they're haunted by this past self but it's like you get to introduce yourself as a new version of yourself you get to reinvent yourself anytime you want and you get to step into spaces as Sober Dave or Beth Bowen and we get to be the version of ourselves that we aspire to be and I, I still use that idea in my life now outside of alcohol of like this thing isn't working this thing is something that's been wrapped up in my identity this thing is who i was before but it's not really working for me anymore i get to decide to to change that i can be a different person i can step into the room as a different person and for me that's a really refreshing thought to be able to say i am not stuck i am not static i'm never at the final version of myself and i can mm. keep changing and evolving I love that. And and we and we get to know ourselves, right? The real, true, authentic selves. And that's not always great. 
because <laughs> I've realised that I do have the odd fault, but do I? <laughs> <laughs> but no, but do you know the other side to it as well is that when I stopped drinking, I almost became that 14-year-old boy again mm. because that is the last time I had true authentic mm. thoughts because I numbed them out for 40 right. years. So, you know, I quite often go back to see my inner child and I'll mm-hmm. wrap my arms around him and say, do you know what? You're all right, mate. You are, mm. you know, and I give him a lot of love because I can see that vulnerable kid standing there opening mm-hmm. that letter with my mum gone, you know. I, there are always reasons for it. I, and what you talked about earlier as well about being a cumulative, I'm a real believer. I'm not so, so much a believer in the disease Mm-hmm. model of it i i'm more um i think we're wired a certain way i've never really got into gambling or sex mm. addiction or or online shopping it's always or drugs mm. it's always been alcohol and that's one thing that i battle with but the longer it goes on the le- you know I, I i've got used to it now so mm. it, again it's like looking back at it thinking oh you know there was another period of my life that i did yeah. this but now I do this and mm. it's so much better, you know, like there's a million, I could talk to you for hours about the, <laughs> the benefits and that I can't really think about the negatives really, because there aren't really. Right. Well, and it's like you said, with the first pub event that you went to and you're like, actually, I'm not having fun and I don't enjoy this, so I'm going to leave. It's, the negatives for me are so minuscule because I've also learned certain social situations that maybe I perceived as a negative of not drinking, like not being able to be at the bar, not being able to, you know, be playing drinking games or whatever. I don't actually like doing those things. So I just don't do them anymore. There's no negative to me there. Yeah, I know. I suppose the only thing that I I sometimes struggle with a bit is to turn the volume down on Mm. certain situations. You know, yeah. uh, you can meditate, you can go for run and that, but sometimes you think, oh, I could just immediately turn that off. But then I'll go and do something completely different. And, it, you know, it's I always say it's a bit like a hunger craving mm-hmm. that, you know, when you say, oh, God, I'm starving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then half an hour later, you've gone past it. It's right. like that. It's surfing the urge and whatever. And uh, they, they are so far few between now that, that it doesn't really affect me. And I really resonate with that idea. You know, people ask me if I crave alcohol and I'm coming up on five years to the end of September and I don't like alcohol is never the thing that pops into my brain mm. as the solution or the thing that's going to make me feel better. But I still have those feelings of desiring to get outside myself. So you still have that feeling of, I wish I could just turn this off. I wish I could stop feeling what I'm feeling. Yeah. This feels uncomfortable. And you just learn how to either sometimes sit with it or do something else about yeah. it. Yeah. I, I had an incident um, a few months ago and I saw some uh, people walking down the road and there was a big England football game on. And it was like that. All mm. of a sudden, oh my God, they're going to the pub to watch the football. Mm. And, and it was like that, you know, it was just out of the blue. It crept up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I really had to sit with those feelings and deal with it, you know, yeah. but okay. When the game kicked off, I then thought, oh, my God, I'd been absolutely trashed by now. And and people telling me the same crap jokes, spitting all over me, spilling <laughs> beer on me. I thought, nah, I don't, I don't want that yeah. life yeah. anymore, you know? Yeah. I am curious, when you talked about 
how you started holding yourself accountable and how you started making space and talking about this and realizing that, especially in your generation, there really weren't a lot of people talking about this. What would you say for somebody who hasn't yet built any sort of community in this or hasn't yet made any sort of connections or doesn't know if there is any connection available to them? Why should they seek out community and how do you suggest they do so? I think is, uh, it's important to find out what your community is as well, because I always say it's like going shopping. So you and me would go shopping, right? And you might go in a shop and I'd say, no, nah, that's not really for me. And mm-hmm. you go in my shop and you, you're not for you sort of thing. So some people like AA, it didn't work for me over in the UK, but also since then realized maybe I didn't go to the right meetings yeah. and maybe I should have explored different meetings because maybe it was the people in the meeting. I've had and that same since thought. then I, I've been really more open to the idea of the steps, 12 step, but I think that could work in life. Mm-hmm. Let alone giving up alcohol. Um, there's smart recovery, there's Facebook groups, there's online communities you know there's so many different things out there and if you feel awkward in go actually physically going out to these meetings then there are things that you can join and be part of and my app has got a small community in where people like that but there are other groups that are bigger mm-hmm. um, and that suits some people because they can sit in the background and just listen okay. on you know mm-hmm. uh, but I just think connection is really important And that connection includes with yourself as well, Mm. you know, because I always say that drinking can be the loneliest place in the world for you, especially for me, because I was hooked into shame. Mm. You know, I felt incredibly ashamed. I was hiding, drinking, whatever. And and I felt really bad about myself. But you you don't want to be lonely in your sobriety as well. So I think finding your community whatever that may look like to you is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to think it's kind of the the missing link for a lot of people and, and the thing that opens the door for the possibility of this being long-term because it just feels good when you're connected with other people and you feel less alone and you also yeah. realize that you're not the only person who's ever dealt with yeah. this. Yeah. You relate, feels, you know? Yeah. It feels so isolating. And then when you were talking about how you switched to vodka because you were looking for the thing that had less calories. I wrote that down because I had the exact same experience. It's like I was blaming everything in my life on everything else but the alcohol. Like I wanted to lose weight. And so what do you do? You drink the thing with less calories. So I switched to vodka. If I had just cut out alcohol, 500 calories of wine a night, that would have been a very different shift. But that was just Couldn't even think about it. Couldn't even touch it at that point in time. But you start to step into a community with other people who understands that and who are like, oh my God, I did that too. Or, oh yeah, when you talk about the hiding, like I totally know what you're talking about. It really changes the calculus of how lonely this can feel. Yeah, it's incredibly lonely. And especially when the bottles that you've hidden get found Yeah, and and the people don't really get it. They're like, what? you know why are you a liar but mm. we, it's it's we done well for me certainly I wasn't lying I, I felt like I needed it and I was embarrassed about the amount I was drinking so I mm. I had to hide it mm. so I would kind of be able to manage it I mean my wife used to say I don't understand why you can't share a bottle of wine on a Friday night right and right. for me I'd rather have nothing than half a bottle of wine because yeah. that child's half a play bottle, <laughs> 
child's play and, and <laughs> it would lead me up the garden path thinking, right, where's the rest? Right. You know, so right. I would plant them all over the place, in the mm-hmm. garden, under the bed, everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in my sock drawer, just so I could get enough. Yeah. Uh, but with that comes shame because you you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, my God, I can't, mm. can't believe what happened last night. And But mm. then you go and do it the night after and the night after. Yeah. So Being with people who truly do get it is really powerful and has been something, at least in my own journey, that's been really, really useful. So the last question I ask every episode is, if your story were to be written into a book, what would it be titled and what kind of book would it be? And I know you might already have an answer for this. Interesting, because <laughs> um, the timing is perfect because I've actually written a book and it's got the title of my podcast, which is One for the Road. Yes. And do you know what's really ironic, Beth, is that when I was drinking, my catchphrase was I could write a book about it. I could write huh. a book about it. Yep. You know what I mean? And now yep. I have. Uh, so it's part memoir, part self-help you Mm -hmm. know i'm a coach so there's lots of tips especially covering gray area drinking and also it's um motivational as well because i believe Mm -hmm. you've got to be motivated and positive and get up in the morning and say today i am not drinking alcohol put your stamp in it straight away yeah it's taken me a long time to write uh, and i am very proud of it and Mm -hmm. it comes out on the 9th of september Amazing. Um, which I feel a bit nervous about it, but because my podcast has done so well that I, I've got to live up to it in a bit, but I'm sure it'll be okay anyway. So, yeah, it would be one for the road. Beautiful. And you know what? I feel like the stars are aligned here because this podcast episode is coming out on September 9th. So oh that means God, it's, it's all coming go. together. It's all coming together. Beautiful. Well, I will be Amazing. sure to look out for that and be one of the first to order or pre-order or anywhere we can oh, get that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's <laughs> out on that day. So yeah, it's... Uh, I'm proud of it because it is a memoir as well. And I never look back on my life as I wish it was different because it's brought me to where I am today. Mm. And you can't change it anyway, can you, yeah. really? So. Exactly. Yeah, you can't do anything about it anyway. <laughs> no. Well, I know our community is going to want to connect with you, if not already connected. So how do they find you? Where can they find you? And how do they order your book? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Sober Dave, quite easy. And my book's on Amazon. So it will be there. And I think, I believe I'm going to do a special discount on the day for 24 hours so they can get it uh 60% off beautiful on the ninth uh, when this is uh yeah, public perfect. so yeah. there you go if you're if you're a day of listener you get a 60% discount way to way to be there a, a fan of the podcast <laughs> yeah beautiful day and your podcast is one for the road they can find it everywhere yeah that's on apple that's on android wherever google play it's all over the shop and um there's some great guests on there, all life stories mm. from all over the world. I've really enjoyed being on on yours. It's nice to sit in the other seat. I know. Honest. Isn't it kind of funny to be on the other side? Well, this has just been really wonderful, and I appreciate your story and sharing it with us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, David Wilson. Dave's book, One for the Road, should be out today. Go grab your copy. Maybe we should start a Sober Stories book club. 
If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends. Thank you.